Thanks very much. As many of you um, will know, we all have an idea at some point in our lives of things that we might do uh, with our lives and with our careers. I have to say, as someone who campaigned passionately uh, for us to stay in the EU, um, the idea of being Shadow Secretary of State for exiting the EU uh, was never on any list I had of jobs to do before I retired. Um, I'd like to start by saying what an honour it is uh, to be asked to speak here at the UCL Institute of the Americas, um, and particularly to be able to give the annual Eleanor Roosevelt lecture, um, not only because of the subject matter, uh, but also, of course, because UCL is a much-valued university in Hoban and St Pancras, uh, my constituency. So uh, welcome to all of you who are not from Hoban and St Pancras uh, to this constituency. Um, as has already been referenced in my maiden speech in Parliament, I did quote Roosevelt's description of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which she did so much to bring about, um, as, um, and I quoted it as the International Magna Carta of all men everywhere, or at least that's what she said. It's a description that captures her vision uh, for the Universal Declaration, uh, a set of exercisable rights agreed upon collectively by nations that apply to everyone wherever they are in the world. And everybody will appreciate the significance of that um, in the period in which these rights were drawn up. In realising at least some of that vision, Eleanor Roosevelt was part of a generation of internationalists who bequeathed an extraordinary legacy to humanity uh, and with that to Britain. This evening I'm going to argue uh, that Roosevelt's legacy is a legacy worth fighting for and it's a fight we must make because it's a legacy that is more under threat today than at any time in my lifetime. In Eleanor Roosevelt's homeland of the United States, we have a president who is plainly and aggressively hostile to human rights. When asked whether he would ever use torture techniques, including waterboarding, he answered yes. And that he would, quote, bring back a hell of a lot worse than that. <coughs> Article 5 of Eleanor Roosevelt's Universal Declaration of Human Rights, of course, prohibits the use of torture, as does every single international human rights instrument that has been promulgated since. Uh, and given what came before the Universal Declaration, uh, the significance of that prohibition on torture should never be underestimated. A fortnight ago, President Trump issued an executive order which, amongst other things, placed an indefinite block on Syrian refugees fleeing a terrible and ongoing civil war. Article 14 states that everyone has the right to seek and enjoy asylum um, from persecution. And anybody who's seen those images uh, of people desperately fleeing from Syria uh, will know just how significant that ban is in terms of international human rights protection. We can have no doubt what uh, Eleanor Roosevelt would have thought of this president's actions. She wrote in her Book of Common Sense etiquette, this. True patriotism springs from a belief in the dignity of the individual, freedom and equality, not only for Americans, but for all people on earth, universal brotherhood and goodwill, and a constant striving towards principles and ideals 
on which this country was founded. Like Roosevelt, I'm profoundly attracted to the egalitarian ideals upon which the United States was founded. Uh, that is why many of us look upon the present administration not just uh, with concern about the dangers that may lie ahead, but also with the sadness one feels at the degradation of that which you hold in deep affection. Here in Britain, uh, we must not allow our rightful interest in what is happening in America to distract us from the challenges we face at home. We're in the process of ending our membership of the European Union, the most seismic political event in a generation. Almost all of the post-referendum discussions since June the 23rd last year has centred on what sort of trading relationship Britain will eventually hold with our European partners. There's been more talk in the last six months of the customs union, the single market, rules of origin, trade dispute mechanisms, WTO schedules and tariff and non-tariff barriers than in the rest of my lifetime put together. Now I don't doubt uh, that trade is important, but our leaving the EU poses far more questions and sets far more challenges than how it is that we as a nation will buy and sell goods and services in the international market. The European project has shaped how we as a nation have conducted scientific research, how we've tried to deal with the growing threat of climate change, how we've tackled serious organised crime and terrorism, uh, and how we've kept peace uh, on the continent. We will now have to look at all these challenges anew. And it is one of my priorities as Labour's lead on exiting the European Union to push for a future where we remain engaged with our European partners and fully participate in beneficial collaborative projects. There is no reason uh, to end our relationship with the EU. We're merely changing our relationship with the EU. And our values of internationalism, of cooperation and collaboration in all those important fields should drive us uh, as we reach agreements with the EU on the race ahead. Uh, we also need to continue to have a relationship with Europe and other international partners based upon our common values of protecting rights, sharing burdens and spreading opportunity. I was appalled when the government announced yesterday that they will not be taking any more lone refugees in accordance with their commitments under the Dubs Amendment. Just over a year ago, Martin Plout here and I um, went to the camps in Calais and Dunkirk, uh, as they were then, um, and saw many, many children in freezing, sodden conditions in tents where they'd been living for months uh, in squalor. Um, absolute deprivation. Uh, and that was one hour, one hour on the train from King's Cross St Pancras. And I left uh, the night we left, uh, seeing children the same age as my own going into a wet, flimsy tent in freezing conditions, as they'd done for many, many, many previous nights. I then travelled home to Kentish Town and looked in on my children sleeping in a warm bed in a warm house, the only difference between them being where they were born. And so I think that uh, decision by the government yesterday 
is a retrograde uh, step. Um, this is not the only failure to live up to our values and obligations, but it is short-sighted. Brexit may mean Brexit, but there are still challenges that we can only, come by work, only overcome by working multilaterally with our closest partners. That means doing our bit to help assist with an international crisis. <coughs> the project of entrenching and promoting human rights is, of course, as profoundly impacted by our leaving the European Union as any other. It is true that the European Convention of Human Rights, of which I'll say a little bit more later, is distinct from the European Union. As such, the rights that it secures are not directly threatened by Brexit. But we should be in no doubt that the European Union does perform vital human rights functions, which will need to be replaced and replicated here in Britain. For example, the European Union has successfully used access to its markets as a way of promoting human rights across the world. Turkey abolished the death penalty in 2004 as a precondition of opening EU accession talks, as did countries across Eastern Europe uh, in, the 90, in the 1990s. And having spent many years fighting uh, against the death penalty in legal cases in the Caribbean and Africa, it is a fantastic thing that across the entirety of what is now Europe, uh, we have a death penalty-free zone. Since the signing of the Lisbon Treaty, the European Commission has been compelled to account for human rights when conducting preferential trade agreements with third parties. Again, a really important way of enforcing uh, and protecting human rights. Now, I know there are complaints that this has been ineffective in practice, and there are particular concerns with the Vietnam Preferential Trade Agreement, but the principle is the right principle. We cannot and should not separate commerce from ethics. There will come a time in the not-too-distant future where Britain will be negotiating its own preferential trade agreements. We in the Labour Party think that Britain should use the carrot of access to our market as a tool for promoting human rights, the protection of workers and practices that will help us sustain uh, the environment. No deal should be signed unless it can be demonstrated that it will not lead to greater human rights violations. Every deal should aim to reduce the exploitation of labour. And we should always seek to ensure that there's no drive to the bottom on environmental protection. These are the principles of an ethical trade policy, and that's an issue we need to spend a lot more time considering in the future than we have um, in the past. Trade is far from the only means by which the European Union promotes human rights. The European Union, as you will know, has its own fundamental charter of rights, uh, which has been legally binding since 2009. The charter applies when EU countries adopt or apply national law implementing an EU directive, or when their authorities apply an EU regulation directly. The charter brings together in a single document the fundamental rights protected in the EU, as well as the European Convention of Human Rights, under six titles, and they speak for themselves, dignity, freedoms, equality, solidarity, citizens' rights, and justice. By bringing together a web of case law, international treaties, uh, and other instruments in a single document, the Charter makes rights held by European citizens visible and explicit. How valuable is that in countries such as our own uh, without a written constitution? 
is particularly important for the modern codification of fundamental rights because it provides clarification in areas such as data protection, guarantees on bioethics, and transparent administration. In other words, it's a modern charter of human rights uh, that is able to build on the European Convention, which of course was drafted many, many decades ago. In addition to the charter, rights uh, at the EU level are guaranteed uh, in directives and EU laws springing from the social chapter of the Treaty of the European Union. These rights guarantee things that are precious, but frankly taken for granted, such as non-discrimination against part-time workers, the right to holiday and sick pay, and paternity leave for new parents. All of those spring from EU measures. And taken together, the Equality and Human Rights Commission have said that the charter and directives emanating from the treaty amount to, quote, a significant source of directly enforceable human rights law. Now, we're told by the Prime Minister that once repatriated within the Great Repeal Bill, none of the rights that are currently protected by EU law are under threat. But if you search through her speeches and the speech of the Secretary of State for exiting the EU, you, find, you barely, if ever, find reference to human rights. There are references to workplace rights, but not to human rights. And I remember what the Eurosceptic right said uh, when the social chapter uh, was first being brought into force. They called the fundamental charter as an unacceptable encroachment on sovereignty. So we can see where they will go when we're examining the Great Repeal Bill. And I remember the Prime Minister, when Home Secretary, thought nothing of promulgating myths about the Human Rights Act to further her support within the Conservative Party. Do you remember that party at Conservative Party conference where she tried to maintain that someone had not been removed from the country because of their pet, a myth, and she knew it. So we all have to be vigilant every step of the way and to fight to keep these rights in place. And that starts with the so-called <coughs> Great Repeal Bill. A lot of debate on the EU and leaving the EU has been a debate about process so far, the process, the serving of an Article 50 notice. The substance, the substance is what matters. And I think uh, the most important first task of all of us is to ensure that all of the rights, all of the rights and protections that we all enjoy because of our membership of the EU now are entrenched in domestic law without qualification, without limitation. Uh, and without um, a time limit um, on their protection. And we also need to ensure in the Great Repeal Bill that none of these rights can be changed and altered in the future without primary legislation. We don't want to see these rights in a schedule to an act uh, that can then be changed by secondary uh, legislation. Too often legislation is used to grant sweeping powers to ministers without full parliamentary scrutiny. That's always inappropriate, but even more so when we're dealing with fundamental rights. The challenge we face is, of course, far greater than merely safeguarding the rights we derive from EU membership. 
I'm concerned that opponents of human rights are feeling emboldened by Brexit. There are those that want Britain to retreat further from obligations of internationalism, including from the Council of Europe and the European Convention on Human Rights. That will be a terrible mistake, an assault on Eleanor Roosevelt's extraordinary legacy. And this is a time, I think, for us to recommit to international institutions, to recommit to international norms, and to recommit the international rule of law. Roosevelt was the first chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights, and it was that commission, collectively, that drafted the Universal Declaration of Human Rights um, in 1948. And that was the moment when the world came together and looked at the horror of the Second World War and what had come before the Second World War and resolved uh, that all citizens universally should be protected without qualification, not good citizens or particular uh, uh, citizens from particular countries or with particular characteristics, but all citizens universally. The first important thing about the Universal Declaration. The second, and we miss it often in our analysis, is that the commitment in the Universal Declaration and every other international instrument since the Second World War is a commitment to other countries that these rights will be upheld. One of the great horrors uh, of what happened in Nazi Germany was that some of it happened under the cloak of law and uh, wasn't unlawful in Germany. And so the whole point of universal human rights was, one, to make them universal, Two, not to allow a country ever in the future to say, under our law, it was all right. Uh, and with the present administration in America, how important uh, is that going to be uh, going forward? Uh, we have to admit that the UN Commission in 1948 was not perfectly representative. Uh, in, an era, in an era where Britain and others still jealously guarded their colonial interests, uh, there were no representatives from sub-Saharan Africa. <coughs> Um, but the Commission was not an exclusively Western body, uh, nor was it particularly narrow in its composition. There were, in that 1948 Commission, representatives from China, the Lebanon, Chile, Egypt, India, Iran, the Philippines, the Soviet Union, and, of course, the United Kingdom. There were men and women on the Commission who were people of different faiths and of no faith at all. This diverse collection of men and women came together to declare a set of shared principles expressed in 30 articles which could be commonly recognised. In this, at least, they were remarkably successful. Today, all 192 UN member states have accepted the principles of the Declaration. It's very significant. But of course, the Commission wanted to achieve something far more important than simply the expression of common principles. Roosevelt said she wanted the Declaration to be an event comparable to the 1789 Declaration of the Rights of Citizens in France and the adoption of a Bill of Rights in her homeland. All of the Commission wanted to protect individuals against the sort of horrors that had unfolded in the years preceding 1948. To achieve that, the principles and rights 
in the Declaration have to be more than statements of, statesman, statements of aspiration. They have to be exercisable um, by everybody. A genuine protection against oppression and a vehicle for freedom. In, it's my belief that the European Convention of Human Rights is the mechanism by which that ideal has been achieved in Europe. The principles were codified by the Council of Europe into justiciable law and the court, the European Court of Human Rights, was established to interpret that law. It is the way in which, to quote Winston Churchill, the common spiritual values of the time were to be sustained by law. And the European Convention of Human Rights, much derided by the right in politics, um, was in fact the reflection by those that drafted it of what they thought we'd fought the Second World War for. These were the values that drove us, uh, and they wanted them to be codified and extended across all the countries in the Council of Europe as an expression uh, of uh, the victory of those standards over other standards. And that is often lost in the um, tittle-tattle debate about the Human Rights Act and the European Convention of Human Rights. Much of the European Convention is directly derivative of the Universal Declaration. Um, and, the, and the declaration is mentioned no less than three times in the preamble. And here you can see Eleanor Roosevelt, as it were, her, her inspiration, her work on the declaration, then trickling down uh, into the European Convention and through the European <coughs> Convention um, into uh, Britain. And in the same way uh, in other continents um, and in other countries. So you've got the American Convention on Human Rights, um, the African Charter of Human Rights, all achieving the same thing, a regional expression of the principles set out in the Universal Declaration. And that's why the European Convention um, had in its preamble uh, this, that the countries were being resolved as the governments of European countries which are like-minded and have a common heritage of political traditions, ideals, freedom and the rule of law to take the first steps for the collective enforcement of certain of the rights stated in the Universal Declaration. Uh, that is why my very good friend, Professor Francesca Clark, describes Eleanor Roosevelt as a co-author of the European Convention, and that's part of her extraordinary legacy. The court still sits today interpreting the same enduring convention. Its case law and judgments provide ind individual protections for individuals across the continent. It is the most successful international human rights framework in the world. The story of Eleanor Roosevelt's legacy in Britain, however, does not stop there. Uh, as you will know, in 1998, a Labour government passed the Human Rights Act. Uh, and that act um, <coughs> entrenched the European Convention into our law, making it easier uh, for all of us to access the rights set out in the European Convention. Because instead of going to the court in Strasbourg uh, with an individual case, which often took many years, uh, rights are now uh, directly enforceable uh, in our domestic courts. When you hear someone say they want to bring in a British Bill of Rights, that's almost always code for wanting to repeal the Human Rights Act uh, and make it harder for people to access justice. When people argue to me that a British Bill of Rights would be to improve and enhance on rights, I say, fine, save the Human Rights Act, bank that, 
and pass another statute with additional rights in it. I'm up for that. And you don't have to repeal the Human Rights Act if you want to extend uh, human rights. You only repeal the Human Rights Act if you want to reduce and restrict human rights. And if any change were to make it harder for people to access justice, uh, that there wouldn't be any justice for them um, at all. This is a point that was well understood by Eleanor Roosevelt. And I want to quote in full what she told the United Nations in 1958, because it's really pertinent that this quote is not used as often as some of her other quotes. She said this, where, after all, do human rights begin? In small places, close to home so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any map of the world. Yet they are the world of the individual person, the neighbourhood he lives in, the school or college he attends, the factory, farm or office where he works. Such are the places where every man, woman and child seeks equal justice, equal opportunity, equal dignity without discrimination. Unless these rights have meaning, there they have little meaning Anywhere. I think that's a fantastic quote uh, from Eleanor Roosevelt about the importance and significance of human rights. The Human Rights Act has made a world of difference in the world of the individual person. Let me illustrate this with just uh, a couple of examples. On the 15th of April 1989, thousands of Liverpool fans travelled to Sheffield to watch an FA Cup semi-final. 96 of them never returned because of a crumbling stadium and horrendous crowd mismanagement on behalf of the police. The first inquest into the fans' deaths returned a verdict of accidental death. That decision was quashed in 2012 by the High Court just down the road and a new inquest was ordered. Four years later, uh, as you know, a new verdict of unlawful killing was granted, a 27-year wait for justice. But it was in 2012, when the original inquest was quashed and a new one ordered, that the High Court specifically referenced Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, a, a Human Rights Act, as their reasoning. Article 2, of course, provides the right to life. Uh, and part of that right is a duty on the state to ensure suspicious deaths are properly investigated. As Mark George QC, who was acting for 22 of the families of the new inquest, has said quite rightly, and I quote, this inquest would not have been possible without the European Convention of Human Rights and the Human Rights Act. This inquest proves how crucial such legislation is to righting wrongs and enforcing people's rights. Here's another example from 2010. There was a claimant called DG, who appealed against a decision by the Department of Work and Pensions to refuse him employment and support allowance. An individual in that Eleanor Roosevelt sense uh, at home, at work, in relation to a decision which meant a lot to him. DG had asked the Job Centre to contact his GP for evidence, but they hadn't done so. At his first tribunal hearing, he was advised by the job centre to waive his right to an oral hearing. His paper appeal was then dismissed. On further appeal to an upper tribunal, the tribunal found that DG did not have a fair hearing as required by Article 6. The evidence hadn't been obtained. He'd been persuaded to, ra to raise 
uh, to waive his right to an oral hearing. Um, and on papers, his appeal had been dismissed. They relied in the upper tribunal, Article 6 of the European Convention, the right to have a fair trial. And as a result, his employment support allowance was rightly reinstated. A small victory, but a vital victory for the individual in a world of obstructive bureaucracy. So let us be clear, the opponents of the Human Rights Act wanted to be repealed because it worked, because it provides meaningful constraint on state power, because it gives the individual person a life to, uh, uh, to live life with a dignity and without having to endure discrimination. We must be one of the few countries in the world where when a human rights instrument is passed, giving people rights exercisable against the executive and the state, some people want to give them back. It's so counterintuitive for anybody to want to argue to repeal or reform the Human Rights Act, because that is, that is an act which is intended to pass rights down to the individual so that they can exercise them. And no other country in the world would say, um, the citizens would say, well, now you've passed these rights, we really don't want them anymore, please take them back. Now, today I attempted to portray just some of Eleanor Roosevelt's powerful legacy in Britain, how the human rights legislation, rule of law, help individuals live better lives. I've also outlined some of the threats to that legacy in America and at home. That we can uh, and we must defend human rights against these threats. And we need to be well prepared to defend what we have. But our focus should not be purely defensive. Instead, we should ask ourselves, how can we improve human rights at home and promote them further abroad? What forms of discrimination are still tolerated and need to be challenged? Can we really say we provide access to justice when, uh, as we saw and see with many inquests, the state can outspend bereaved families by millions? And instead of having an argument, a backwards-looking argument, about whether we want to rip up the Human Rights Act and civil and political rights, why not have a forward-looking discussion about how we can now protect social and economic rights and add to the protections that our citizens have? So how can we leverage British power to promote human rights? I've suggested tonight through trade deals, by renewing our commitment to international institutions and upholding our obligations. It's only by answering these questions and making this positive case for universal human rights that we can actually protect and extend the extraordinary legacy of Eleanor Roosevelt. It's only by making this positive case for universal human rights that we can traverse a passage in history that seems to be rich in danger. It's only by making this positive case for universal human rights that we can give power and dignity in the world of the individual person. Thank you very much.